Great. Well, forgive me if um, I feel like this talk is slightly my first thoughts on this subject. I do apologize. A few events took place this week, um, which threw me off course slightly, but, um, you know, let's give it a go. Um, yeah, so you might need your Bibles if you do have one, and there's some on the end of the pews. We're looking at Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, and we're trying our best to kind of really you know, think together what, what, the, what this letter to the Ephesian church is saying to us. Um, and I was thinking, we're on to chapter four today, and I was thinking if um, occasionally John, when we meet someone uh, who doesn't know us yet, he'll say to them just in passing, oh, I'm marrying Miriam and Leslie this week. And they look at me and they're thinking, you can see the confusion come across their face uh, because they think, well, you're already married. How can you be marrying two other people this week? Um, and if you don't know John and if you don't know what it is he does, being a vicar and all, um, then what he's telling you won't make sense. And it's the same with these letters. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul is building up this picture of who God is, who you are in him, and what it is Jesus has done for you. So you need to read and bear in mind 1 to 3 uh, before you try to live out um, what chapter 4 and the following chapters are asking of us. Because they move um, from who, who is God, who are you in him, what has Jesus done for you, to now walk in this truth. So in 3, 16 and 19, you will see these two really important words. One is power and one is love. And those are two things that are absolutely crucial to us in terms of the power of Jesus, where he is seated over and above all rules and authority, all dominion and power. And, where, and he is, as we know from these um, earlier chapters, he has seated us with him and made the riches of heaven available to us in Christ. So he's given us power to play our part in, the, in God's mission to mend and renew and recreate everything. That is massive. So power and love, if you remember in these chapters, Paul has told us again and again that we are loved in Jesus, that we are made secure as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we belong in the very household of God and so now, Paul comes on to say, walk. And in 4, verse 1, 4, verse 17, 5, verse 2, 5, verse 15, again, you will see this pattern, this invitation, given what we now know. Now walk. How will you live this? And you'll see, we're looking at 1 to 16 today, and you'll see 1 to 13 is really all about Paul showing us both the sameness and the difference that there is in the body of Christ, that is the church. So there is both unity and there's diversity. Now, Paul's big, big sort of image here is that the church works like a body. But I want you to bear in mind that Jesus has commissioned the church by the power of his spirit to be his body on the earth, to continue what he was doing on the earth. 
That's quite a big commissioning that he's given to the church. So that's what we're talking about when we call the church the body of Christ. And Paul's point here is that as the body of Jesus, we are interconnected and you are part of a whole. And yet we are also diverse. We're all different. We all have a different design and we're designed differently for different functions. And Paul's point is, you need to celebrate both the sameness, what it is we have in common, and the difference that you and I will have gifts that are different from each other. But instead of finding that threatening or annoying, that's, that's something to celebrate. So this is what this is about. And then 4 to 16 is a little, a little picture where he just paints an amazing picture of all this vibrant, healthy, growing body. And his little caveat there is don't dislocate yourself from this body. Don't come apart from this body. Rather play a part, play your part in this body the body of Christ. So let's delve into it in more detail. One to three is kind of setting the scene. He's saying, live out of and live up to your calling. And this actually isn't your calling to be a teacher or a mechanic. It is a more fundamental call. And if you just cast your minds back to the gospel, the call of Jesus is this. Follow me. Follow me. And if you will respond to that call, you will serve the purposes of God in the world. You will spend your life finding out what pleases him and serving the kingdom of God, giving him your undivided allegiance. And in verse 4, Paul pops in this idea of the hope of your calling. And I just want us to remember as we go on, that when you come under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, you come into all the benefits of what he has done. And he has broken through the power of death itself. And that is what gives you a hope that cannot be shaken. He has been victorious over death and darkness and destruction. And what Jesus has started running when he rose from the dead and sat down in the heavenlies was something that is, gives us unshakable hope because it means that good is coming. Whatever is happening to you from day to day, whatever your circumstances might be shouting at you, God is coming. <laughs> Heaven on earth is coming. The fullness of the reign of God is coming. And in him, there is no shadow. There's no shade. He is utterly good. So this calling takes precedence over every other calling on your life. This calling means that you are going to spend your life becoming more like Jesus and doing the things he did. And this means you are called to become a powerful agent in the kingdom of heaven. A powerful agent of heaven on earth. Now you'll see in verse 2 that he says, 
you will need to be humble and meek. Or you'll need to be gentle and lowly. And what comes to my mind is a little word that perhaps we need to hear. And that is, remember Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart. And yet Jesus was a powerful agent of the kingdom of heaven on earth, wasn't he? So don't, so, so what I'm saying is that you can be both humble and meek and powerful and strong. Do you see that? So don't make humility an excuse to pop behind a curtain because other people are probably more gifted than you or other people have a role to play and you suddenly have a crisis of confidence about whether you have a part to play. Don't make humility an excuse to put yourself down, to exclude yourself from the calling of God on your life. Don't make it a reason to not use and pursue more of the gift that you have been given. Don't live your life apologetic or trying not to cause any, any trouble to anybody. <laughs> because you are called to be humble in the face of the powerful things God is doing in and through you. And the more you understand of chapters one to three, the more you will walk humbly. Because you know that the powerful things that are happening through you and the gifts God has given to you, your, your biggest successes, if you like, are simply because of the mercy of God. And the, the amazing gifts <laughs> that you may have are just simply gifts from God. That's what keeps us humble. <laughs> so humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, they sound quite hard to me. <laughs> I wonder if they do to you. But the, the point here is that without those, we would be a community full of competition and boasting and pride, and that would quickly squeeze the joy out of what God has called us to do together, out of the unity he's called us into. So if you do have a strong gifting, your job is to use that gifting to serve, to serve the wider church and to serve the world and to help one another grow in our different giftings. And it's interesting here, Paul is obviously talking then about unity and um, I guess it set me thinking about the culture, and I don't know, but my impression is that probably more than ever before, the culture is pulling us towards individuality and towards autonomy and freedom to do what I want. And there are many good things about ideas around choices and my rights and me time. <laughs> But it is true, apparently, and I read some research on it, and I, I couldn't find it, so I'm sorry if this is slightly inaccurate. But there was some research done a few years ago about what in our culture, what in our society, holds people together across different generations. And they could only really find two things uh, that had any hope of, of sort of holding people together. One was the church, 
And one was things like a football match where you get granddad, you get little Jimmy, and you get me with my midlife crisis. You get all those generations going to watch a football match together. And the belonging, because they're all mad about Southampton Football Club, um, holds them together. But actually, even the best of, um, you know, that kind of belonging is just minuscule compared to what St. Paul is saying the church could look like. His vision here (laughs) is absolutely cosmic because in Jesus Christ, a recreation is happening. And in him then, a whole new humanity is being inaugurated in the church. Not just then that individuals get given new life, but that a whole new humanity is unified and reconciled and recreated. It's just sort of mind-blowing. So that the church is a microcosm of God's new humanity. Now, the truth is, We've messed that up, haven't we? (laughs) And we fall short of that. But let's just get a bit of renewed vision around what the church is designed to be in the world because um, that is where we're heading. And Jesus is so patient and kind to us. (laughs) He's still willing to work with us, even though the church sometimes messes that up. So again, just to remind us in verse 3, it says the unity that we have is the unity of the Spirit. It's not actually a unity that we create. (laughs) He says we need to make an effort to maintain it, but it's the unity of the Spirit. And so, of course, the, the, the amazing, the astonishing thing about church is that it holds us together across differences, doesn't it? Across differences of ethnic background, uh, social status, age, gender, different interests, hobbies, all kinds of other things uh, are, are different among, among we who make up the church. But the thing is, the unity doesn't depend on any of those It depends on something that is unchanging, that is actually relevant to every single human being on the planet. And that is, our unity is created because of what Jesus Christ has done. And as we position ourselves in Christ, that unity is a gift to us. And there are various bits in the Bible, aren't there, where Paul says, no, there's no, no Greek, no Jew, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, no male, female, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said in his book, Life Together, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. And you will know from this letter so far that the body of Christ was holding together people groups who had been hostile, who had hated each other, who had held each other in contempt. So that, so that the astonishment for them was that the Spirit, they had experienced the Spirit equally, if you read through the book of Acts. And this, frankly, astonished some of them It looks as if everyone gets access here. And that is why as well Paul lists these seven things that are the ones. (laughs) 
These are the things that they have in common. These are the things that hold you and I together across all our differences. And there they are. One, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. How big is my little difference with you? Something about me that might irritate you. (laughs) Something about me that you'll need to forgive me for. When, When these things are the things that hold us together. That we have one Father. We have one God. We have one baptism, one hope, one faith, one spirit. This is what empowers us and enables us to let that other stuff go. (laughs) And one of the things I find is that worshipping together, in in other words, lifting your eyes up to the one, (laughs) it just helps you to be forbearing. It helps you to be patient and kind and long-suffering. So you will see in verse um, 7, There is a but. (laughs) And Paul is moving there from the idea that this is one body, that we're all part of a whole, to this very important idea that actually, as well, we are all different. And it says there that Jesus gives each one of us gifts. Each one of us is gifted by Jesus. And what that means is that there's not a special few. There's not a particular group within a community within the church who are gifted, actually we're all given a gift. And 11, uh, the 8 to 11 there is hard to understand, I think, by anyone's standards. But the, the gist of 8 to 11 is that it is Jesus who is the giver of gifts and that he has achieved something in what he has done, which has, it seems to say there, he has literally taken captivity captive. It's hard to understand those words, but it looks as if it's saying he has taken captivity captive. Isn't that amazing? And what that means is that because of what he's done, the spirit has been able to be released in the church to release back into humanity all the freedom, all the wholeness that we were designed to have. So the gift is the gift of Jesus. He has paid a high cost for, that, for, for us to be released in these giftings. But it, it is done. And it is, those gifts are to be used to work out freedom in our lives together. And Paul goes on to say that this diversity that he's going to talk about next isn't, isn't the diversity of different backgrounds or cultures. It's, a, it's the diversity of gifting. Now, you may think everyone should be more like you. But actually, I'm sorry to tell you this, but it would be a disaster if everyone was just like you. It would be a disaster if everyone was just like me. You see, John seriously likes ironing. This is true. But if John was just like me, who would do the ironing? Who would be strong and consistent when I am verging on hysterical? We need each other. The difference itself is a gift. I need you to be different from me. (laughs) 
because it enriches the whole. And I once heard an amazing story of how a woman uh, got prayed for in the power of the Spirit, and she could see in color for the first time in her life, and that wasn't even what they were praying for. But imagine what that does when colors are suddenly appearing side by side. Purple is purple, but when it's alongside red or orange, that's a whole other ballgame, isn't it? So one color sets off another. So it enriches the whole, doesn't it? Difference enriches the whole. And it was always the plan of God. And Paul's message is this. Don't let differences divide you. Rather celebrate them and champion others, both those who are growing in the same gift as you and those who have a completely different gift to you. So it would take forever, and quite rightly, to really properly look at this list of gifts that Paul gives us. But he gives us five giftings here, and he names them as apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. And I guess, I mean, honestly, we could spend a very long time having a think about that. But apostolic gifting, it seems to me, maybe, people who... Who, who, who sort of lead the way on the big picture. They are not normally fearful people. They are risk-taking people. They start things. They plant new churches. They love multiplying things. They love setting culture. They love, yeah, the big picture. They're visionaries or founders. And they go after the, you know, the scary gifts like miracles and healings. And we need them in the church. There are times in your life where you need someone apostolic to push you forward into something new, help you take a risk. And then there's prophets who are so good at seeing God's future and calling people into it. They often care about what is right. They long for a deeper uh, life with God. They have gifts to hear God. They're passionate about justice. They expose corruption. They're sensitive often to spiritual warfare. They're often urgent. They feel things deeply. They're often creative. There are times in my life I need someone prophetic to speak into my life. The church needs that voice. Then there are evangelists, people who love nothing more than to be outside of the church doing their thing, telling people about Jesus, seeing people come to faith in Jesus, explaining the gospel in fresh and relevant ways to people. They're often good communicators. They love an invitation. Then shepherds are those, aren't they, often, whose care they see they see the one. They're in for the long haul. They, they, they see the detail. They are relational, often very emotionally intelligent people. They come alongside. They're passionate about building community. They're passionate about seeing people come into freedom and wholeness. Then there's teachers who basically, I suppose, love studying and explaining the scriptures as part of church. They love learning. They love seeing others learn. They are wise. They maybe love thinking about theology and finding new resources um, for, for us to understand things better about our life with God. They're, they're often curious people. They're insightful. 
And people interpret this list in many different ways. You will find all kinds of people who say, oh, well, those gifts were just a random five things that came out of Paul's brain on that day. Or they may say, well, those were gifts for then, but actually I don't know if they're all relevant for now. But there's a bloke called Alan Hirsch who is passionate about um, seeing, you know, exploring whether these gifts might actually be something more like an original design for, well, not just church, but probably the whole of God's humanity. And it's interesting that in his books, he talks about how these different gifts are all fully manifest in Jesus in the body of Jesus. So he says, in order to grow in a healthy way, we must make sure we've aligned ourselves with the original design for the church. In other words, that all these different gifts are absolutely vital to see a church grow healthy and strong as a body. He says it's a bit like in our actual bodies, we have nervous systems, we have skeletal systems, we have a hormonal system. And he says each function needs the other to be properly itself. So one system can't exist without another one. And each function enriches and counterbalances or corrects even the particular bias of the other systems. So he says, if all the parts are present and functional in the way they were designed to function, then the system is perfectly primed to do exactly what it was designed to do. That actually is worth thinking through. That's incredible. If all the parts are present and functional in the way they were designed to function, then the system is perfectly primed to do exactly what it was designed to do. Now, what are these gifts for then? In verse 12, Paul says to equip the saints for works of service. It's the same word as ministry. In other words, for the, they're, they're to equip the, the church, they're to equip us to live out our calling powerfully, to build up, and that word is the same word for to mend a net. So there's all sorts of meanings for that word. It's a very rich word. But it, those gifts are to build up Men strengthen, reorder the church. And there, my goodness, Paul is on a roll. What are we aiming for? He says to strengthen our unity, to deepen our knowledge of Jesus, and to fill out as the image of Jesus in the the world. I don't know if you've ever met a very skinny boy, and then you meet him a few years later, and you see, my goodness, you filled out. Have you ever said that? They probably didn't like that. But... um, I know what you're talking about if you have said that. But this is Paul's idea that we fill out. We are built up. And with the help of one another, we become more fully Jesus to the world. We grow into who we already are. Now, practically, that means calling out gifts in one another. Sometimes, many of you may be sitting there thinking, do you know what, I have no idea what my gifting could be. Call out gifts in one another. And when someone has a greater gifting than you, don't be jealous of them, but learn from them. Learn from them. Start following them around. Practice and train on purpose. 
Think of someone you have seen a gift in and ask yourself, have I ever actually told them that? Get over there and tell them. Okay, so 4 to 16 as we end. His basic message is there to keep growing. He says, like a body, we together are designed to grow. We are designed to grow. And actually, in, um, in, there's a word there that means what he's actually saying is, um, if you do all this, if you function and grow in all those giftings, and if you make an effort to keep, keep one, keep yourselves one, and celebrate both the oneness and the difference, as a result, you will no longer be like this child. He paints this picture of, of a very vulnerable, small person being tossed around like a helpless, rudderless boat on a stormy sea or pulled around by the wind. Because on the other hand, he's saying, if you do this and the church is functioning in the way it's designed to function, you will grow, you will flourish, you will function in a healthy way and you will change the world. But if you... Uh, are, if you basically come away from that, you lose sight of that vision for the church, you become very quickly someone who is tossed around. And, and actually, there's a very strong image there when it says about um, being deceived. It, it is actually a word about someone in a gambling game who has loaded the dice so that they are going to strip you of every penny you have, basically. You're going to be tricked. You're going to be deceived. You are left vulnerable. And you're going to lose a sense of direction. And it's worth taking a moment, isn't it? Thinking in your life, what is one deception? What is one trickery? What is one distraction that, that could throw you off course? What would that be? And how can you change direction? So two things he says you can do to avoid that, to grow together and in a healthy way. You'll see in 15 and 16, there's a great sandwich there, things sandwiched in by in love. Because he says, and he doesn't actually say speaking the truth in love. He is literally saying, um, he talks about truthing, truthing in love. And when you think about the things we need to do to stay on course and to help each other stay on course, in your own body, on a good day anyway, we feed ourselves good food, don't we? We drink lots of water. We get out into the sunshine. You might even take a vitamin. We help each other and we help ourselves to stay healthy and strong. And he's basically saying, go around truthing. So live out truth, speak out truth, be the truth. Gather around the truth, not your own version of it. And that's one to work on, isn't it? Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. But that's what we're called into. You will need others to help you um, both, you'll need them to speak the truth to you in love, 
and your need to be um, so full of love uh, that you are courageous to speak the truth to others, a truth that will cause them to grow up according to God's design for them. So go around truthing and go around playing your part. There's a great bit in that last verse, verse 16, that says, play your part. This body will only grow, it will only be healthy if you are functioning as a little ligament, as a little finger bone, whatever it is you're gifting is enabling you to do. Play your part. Don't Don't opt out. Don't spectate. Serve the church and the world with the gift that you've been given. And that will not only cause the church to flourish and grow, it will cause you to flourish and grow. So I need you. (laughs) And you need me. And the thing about COVID is, I would say, that if the enemy were to sow a lie into the church over this time, one of the biggest ones must surely be to scatter us. And for whatever reason at this point in time, to start to sow a lie into your spirit that is either that that, that this community doesn't need you or that you don't need them. I can be a Christian on my own. I've actually got quite used to going online, picking out my favorite uh, worship song from far across the world and listening to my favorite speaker in the comfort of my own armchair. That is not even close to the design that God intends for us as church in this place, in this time. (laughs) So... Let's pray. (laughs) We are better together, says Paul. It's the truth. Let's stand up for a moment if you would like to. Let's ask Jesus to just show us. Show us. Yeah. I think the word that came to me was original. There's two words, original design. And maybe for some of us, Holy Spirit, we just want to ask you to come. Maybe things have got in the way. Things have wounded us. We need to come back. Come back to your original design for us. So come, Holy Spirit, in your mercy, God, would you stir up again in each of us the gift that Christ has given us to play a part in the church and in the world, to become powerful agents of heaven on earth. And would you, God, At this time, show us your original design for this church, for this community, in this place, in this point in history. (laughs) Lord, show us again your purposes, your plans, the calling that you have on each of our lives.
from the Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind if anything's cut in on that in our own lives, if anything's thrown us off course? We are your church, Jesus. Fill us again with your power and with your love.